welcome to the Inspired Minds Podcast. Yet again, my name is Jeff Watson. That has not changed yet. And I am indeed your gracious and grateful host. How y'all doing today? Good to hear. I am not doing so well. I'm a little under the weather right now. But you know what? The show must go on, goddammit. I have a responsibility to provide content. Content, 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 content is king. So I will soldier forth. I will sally forth. I will continue this process. Um, I love horror. I am so excited for this show coming up here. I love horror. When I was a kid, uh, I think the first horror movie I saw was The Shining at like eight or something, which really isn't a good idea, but it set me off on a course for this kind of thing. When I was probably 12, there was a magazine called Fangoria. The nerds out there will get this one. And it was a, it was a magazine dedicated solely to showing stills from upcoming horror movies. It was a promotional thing and all the gore you could imagine. Jason, the guy's machete going through some guy's head or Freddy, the faces slashed by the knives. I was completely into it. And then I ended up working at a video store when I was a kid. God damn it. Am I old? I used to work at a punch card video store. We used to buy in abacuses. Um, but it was, um, it was so much fun. I got to be exposed to so many different, really corny horror. That was kind of my thing. Like the Toxic Avenger, all the trauma releases. Um, there's a movie called Dead Alive, actually. It's a zombie movie that Peter Jackson did way before The Hobbit. That is just completely bonkers. Dawn of the Dead, the George Romero stuff, the reanimator. Herschel Gordon Lewis, which was this guy, he's like kind of known as the godfather of gore from the late 60s, did this movie called 2000 Maniacs that was nutty. But regardless, this is my thing. And I wanted to just kind of rattle off some uh, horror movies that I think are fantastic. And of course, I'm going to do this. I'm going to throw in a little spooky sounds. Okay, here we go. That list includes the aforementioned Shining, well, of course. Exorcist, Hereditary, holy crap, that movie was scary. The Thing, featuring Kurt Russell, that's the movie. Hellraiser, of course. Eraserhead, yeah, you gotta do that one. Alien, The Fly, Halloween, yes, of course, I have these written down. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, that's got Dennis Hopper, that's fantastic. Evil Dead 2, Sam Raimi's masterpiece. Poltergeist, yeah, of course. Nightmare, Scream, Carrie. Hold on, I got the music in at least. But the most terrifying thing I can possibly think of was the movie As Good As It Gets featuring Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt, and the other guy whose name I've forgotten right now, Greg Kinnear, as a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely terrifying. And why? Because there's that one line when Jack Nicholson walks out of the therapist office and he looks all around at everybody else waiting and he says, you ever ask yourself, is this as good as it gets? Okay, that's scary. I'm sorry, John Carpenter. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, Halloween. That's frightening. And why do I bring this up? Hang on, I gotta get some more laughter in there. Scary sounds. I don't anymore. That bit was dumb. So uh, I say all of this to say the next interviewee, the guest, wow, Marianne Madalena. Good God. So West, she was Wes Craven's producer business partner, the whole thing for an incredibly long time from the film Shocker. And we're talking now, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, all the screams, because Wes Craven did that, and a bunch of stuff. 
She's a knight. She's an actual knight in France, which is unbelievable. That's the first and last time I will ever have an actual goddamn knight on my show. Hey, she liked it. I guess that means I was knighted. My friend and I, Michael Lee Simpson, who puts on this goddamn show to begin with, we are knighted. How fantastic is that? There's a great line also, uh, a lot of good stuff about Bob Weinstein and Gary Del Toro. I cannot believe that. I cannot believe you told the story. Fantastic. I'm going to turn up the scary stuff. Ooh, bells. Bang, like ACDC, hells, bells. All right, folks. That's all I got. As always, I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. This is scary. Ooh. <laughs> all right, I'm done. I'm going to go back to bed. I'm tired. Bye. Well, hello, everyone, the Inspired Minds audience yet again. Holy crap, is this going to be a good interview? I have with me the incredible Marianne Madalena. Did I pronounce that last name right? Yes, you did. Okay. In addition to being Marianne Madalena, this is a night, ladies and gentlemen, and the first time on the podcast, and most likely, statistically speaking, the last time that an actual night will be on my show, and that is the, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce this right. Okay, Marianne? Huh? Here we go. This is my French high school coming out of play, maybe. Chevalier de la Ordre des Arts et Lettres. That's very good. Very, very good. I wouldn't touch it. No. <laughs> Thank you. Please tell me about that. I don't know how that works. I've been involved with the French community in, all, you know, in France and in L.A. for years. And I host parties every year during the French Film Festival. And I don't know, just generally a Francophile. And out of the blue, I got a certificate saying that France had bestowed a knighthood on me. And a couple of weeks ago, they had a ceremony where they actually pinned a medal on me. No so way. I am a, a knight in France. That's, they pinned something? Do they have a, a sword? That's all I know. It's like one side or the other side. They don't have a sword, sadly. But the pin, they don't tell you it's a medal. And there's two pins. Like it's made for a male, like a soldier's coat. I just had a little silk dress on. And there's two, and there's nothing. There's just two big pins. So while I was getting it, I had to like act like I wasn't in pain. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Merde. I can't say this. I'm just going to keep a straight face. I can take it. One last thing about this, by the way, if I were you, I would have felt offended. I didn't get the sword. Like I would have brought my own and they just said, just do this. (laughs) Well, you know, you get a lot of American viewpoints. And I did say people were very confused by the name. At first, they thought it had something to do with Maurice Chevalier. Yeah. And I said, do you get to wear a sash? And I said, well, I think you're thinking of Napoleon. Right. <laughs> I had some jokes about how Americans react to hearing this news. How so? Like I said, like, they don't understand. Do I, they have to bow to me, <laughs> my Maurice Chevalier's sister. Exactly. And so I put it all in my speech. I had some good comedy. <laughs> or is there a giant uh, night suit made of armor that you have? <laughs> so, Okay. Now I'm going to get to, thank you, Knight. What is the, this is the question I always start off with the show really is, when you were young, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you? Was it a song or a book or a movie, something? Um, well, it was movies. My family was movie crazy and with with five kids, you know, and we would all go to the drive-in and um, my mom would pack us all on the back of the station wagon and we would just watch movie after movie all the James Bond movies, um, 
we were just in a, we played movie guessing game in the car. So it always felt like to me, like the most fun thing I could ever do in my life was to, to make movies. It just was from, you know, as a little girl. Sure. Was there a particular film that kind of lit you up? Oh yeah. I mean, I liked, um, you know, I liked all the James Bond movies. I liked, you know, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, Then I kind of got into the French New Wave, Truffaut, um, and that kind of just inspired me as far as, you know, incredible filmmaking. Then I read, then of course I got into Hitchcock, uh-huh. whom I loved. And then I loved like the Stepford Wives. I've never been this <laughs> yes. my life. We got to sneak and see The Exorcist and Psycho. And sure. I just loved, I like, I don't really like gore, but I love to be scared. I like, I'm attracted to, to thrillers slash kind of going into the horror, like, you know, a kind of a quiet place. Right. So right. I just loved those kind of movies and then um, just, you know, moved to France when I was 18 to be part of the French community and just told everyone I met that I wanted to be a film producer. I manifested it in Cannes. You absolutely did, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That's why I love asking this question. I, it's, my, it's my second favorite question to ask uh, creative and you'll find out what the other one is at the end of this kind of bookended. But it creates a through line. I always find a through line. When I'm talking to a creative, because it's like, you know, obviously like, oh, I was five years old and I heard Boston's more than a feeling, which my, my story, which carried me into the music world. Ah, I went to see Her Majesty's Secret Service with all my siblings and I walked out. And I burst into tears because I was so sad that Diana Rigg had died and I just felt things so deeply from movies. And um, I think that was just, you know, other than my boring life in Michigan, movies kind of gave me an escape from you know, a mundane kind of lifestyle. What about horror do you like? What, what, what's kind of drawn you towards that? I mean, you've done more, I know, but. Well, I mean, I, you know, my type of movie, again, I would say my favorite, other than the movies I've made and Wes's movies, yeah. I like A Quiet Place. I like just, I only watch now, TV show wise, I only watch kind of crime thrillers from England. Uh-huh. Um, I like Luther. I really don't watch comedy at all. And I don't really like drama. <laughs> I like. I like thriller or scarier, but I don't watch, you know, like I don't watch gore, but I would much rather watch a thriller than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a, any great thriller is just that tension all throughout where you're just yeah. like standing on the, standing on the, uh, on the live wire or on the high wire and what's going on. It's fantastic. Yes. I like it. Yeah. Um, so from some of the movies you made, there's, there's, a, I was thinking about this. There's so much fun in so many of these movies, right? Like, like, you know, Freddie, obviously there's fun, there's satire, um, deadly friend, uh, shocker, which again, I gotta get out. So, well, let me, I'll say this people under the stairs, which I kind of rewatched a little bit. And I realized that Wendy Roby, who was, you know, Twin Peaks, uh, she's basically Piper Laurie and Carrie meets mommy dearest. Right. You're right. <laughs> Amazing to watch. Yeah. Raph had some good archetypes. Exactly. That's exactly. I'm going to talk about archetypes with you in a second too. But the fun thing about this is I realized you, you guys were doing kind of William Castle a little bit and some of these old, you know, some of these films like shockers kind of fun movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, Wes was, uh, you know, he wanted to be a comedy director. Um, he was very like had corny, like pun meister type dad jokes. Oh, really? And I mean, it was just one pun after the next. He loved, he was very shy, but he was funny. And so in conversations, he would just make puns with people. And 
that was his way of communicating. And you can see it in his movies. And, um, you know, it kind of torpedoed one of our TV shows called Nightmare Cafe because it was supposed to be a very serious show with Robert Englund and about, you know, nightmares coming true. And the last episode, he went nuts and had like these aliens land and spitting out giant hairballs. And and Warren Littlefield said, done over pulling the plug. Right. um, You know, he was funny. You know, he really was a funny guy. So, you you know, but his medium was horror because he had luck there and he felt comfortable in it. And but he did absolutely combine, you know, um, horror and comedy, which, of course, is why Scream was the perfect marriage for him. Exactly where I was heading with this. Well done, because. (laughs) There's something that I love. I just, for some reason, this just hit me last night. And so I've seen New Nightmare. New Nightmare is actually my favorite out of the canon. Well, I guess maybe the first one. But but New Nightmare and Scream are both meta movies. Yes. That I, I loved. Yeah. He started it. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right with New Nightmare. Yeah, because that had never been done before, as far as I know, because I remember seeing it in the theaters. And I, I thought, wow, they're completely reinventing this thing from top to bottom. Yeah. He really... Um... It's so meta. The whole thing is so meta, but he, he, when he pitched me, he was, you know, had a big feud with Bob Shea and then they got back together for nightmare seven. And he was just really racking his brain to come up with an idea. And he came to me and he goes, here's my idea. Heather is being haunted by Freddie. And I'm like, Oh my God, Wes, that is just at the time I said a million dollar idea. Now it's like a billion dollar idea. Yeah. Went off to the desert and came back and, um, had it done in three weeks. Wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. That, that movie is so great. Part of the reason I love doing these shows, honestly, is that I get to go back and watch all these movies that I've loved. Yeah. It's, that's, it's so wonderful because it just captures such a spirit for me. You know, when I was a kid, it was, I worked at both a video store and a uh, record store. So those two things were incredibly influential for me, which developed my love of film and love of music. And I'm a super dork about both. Um, but the one thing I did want to kind of ask you, so I was going through some of these old trailers too, because I love trailers. And I, I really miss the days of the the voice on the trailers, right? Like, yeah. you know, the inner world. And where did that, how did that stop? Like, who stopped that? I, that's a really good question. I actually don't know. We'll have to find that out. Please do. Let's get on, let's get on that immediately. I, I will do research on that. Please do. Great. Yeah, I'll tell you what, I am ready and willing. I am here. I got the voice. Just kidding. You do have the perfect voice. I kind of do. I kind of do. In a world. Rival where... Roger. You and Roger could fight over it. <laughs> oh, oh, you Roger mean the voice Jackson. guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I heard. Is this true, by the way? I heard that he used to go around L.A. with a scarf to protect his uh, throat everywhere he went. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he did. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. I absolutely love it. So another thing about Scream, I did want to kind of see if you can tell me more about, and I'm sure you're asking about this a lot. I guess you discovered the I, the mask while you're on a location yeah. scout. Pardon? Sorry, I guess that you you were found the iconic mask for the scream. I did. Mask. Do you want to hear the story? I'd love to. It's why I'm asking. Oh my god. Okay. So we were um really trying to come up with a mask and we weren't that far from shooting, maybe four weeks. <clears throat> Excuse me. And can be just they weren't cutting it. They weren't coming up with something scary they were kind of coming up with more gargoyle looking masks and we were up in Santa Rosa and we were scouting locations and we were at this lady's house and, you know, there were about 10 of us and we're all running around the house. And I think it was to be used for Tatum's house. We ended up not using it, but we were in it. 
And I went upstairs and I found this ghost mask on uh, on the bed, but it was had a white shroud. And I ran downstairs and I said to Wes and to Bruce Miller, our production designer, look, oh my God, look at this mask. This is perfect. Right. And Wes looked at me and said, no, 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 I don't like it. I'm creating my own mask. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, all right. You know, I went back upstairs, I put it up there and, you know, we went on with the scout and about a week later, we were really, maybe even two weeks later, maybe we were two weeks from shooting. We didn't have a mask. And I said, why don't you, to Bruce, call, get your location scout to call that lady who owned that house and see if she still has it. You know, hopefully she didn't give it to the goodwill. Right. So he did. And we brought it back and Wes liked it. Yeah. So we got the rights, but then of course, Wes had to make it his own. So he altered the chin, I think. All right. And then it didn't work. I mean, we shot it for a day or two and he went back and he was like, you know what? You're right. This mask works as is. An iconic yeah. mask found in the middle of nowhere. That's great. But then, but then Bob Weinstein hated it. Of course. He said, I hate that mask. He goes, go to the store tomorrow, buy 12 different masks. I don't care what they are. And shoot the Henry Winkler scene with 12 <laughs> different ways tomorrow. Right. Now, of course, we couldn't do that because you can't clear them and that's just silly. But then we had that big famous fight where we said, shut us down if you don't like the, because he hated the dailies too. Really? He hated the first week's dailies. And in wow. fact, he was going to fire Wes. And I ran into Guillermo de Toro and he told me he, Guillermo, was in the room when Bob Weinstein was watching the dailies of Drew and telling Guillermo that he was going to fire Wes because it was just a girl walking around on the phone. <laughs> that he was over and he was going to fire him. <clears throat> now, Guillermo was in the room because he was prepping Mimic, which Bob completely tortured. He said it was one of the worst experiences of his life, second only to his father being kidnapped in Mexico. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> one hour the night before oh the first day of shooting. And that um, wow. it was just hell. And he said, he looked at me and goes, you and I, we haven't just survived. We're thriving. Spite of what we yeah. went through. And of course, I knew at the time that we were going to, you know, going to get fired. And, and I remember Bob saying the dailies were workmen like at best. <laughs> and that he should look, we should look at Ole Bornadel, who was doing a movie and that guy could really shoot. I forgot the name of the movie, like Night Moves, or I forgot the movie. But anyway, when he got, as you know, directors don't have to turn over any cut footage until the director's cut is over. Right. So Bob couldn't handle it. Like he just wanted to cut footage because he wanted to sell his movie. He wanted to go to MeFed. And so what we did to reassure him was we have this brilliant editor named Patrick Boussier who would cut, not only cut to camera, but put music and sound effects in. And he cut the sequence and we sent it to Bob and Bob called us up and said, what do I know about dailies? What? But it completely destroyed everyone's self-esteem. You know, Wes was even telling Drew, Oh, Bob hates the dailies. I'm like, Wes, maybe don't tell Drew that. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what Bob did to Guillermo as well. That Guillermo story is unbelievable. Uh, I just, and this was just recently at um, the screening for what's his movie that he has that Nightmare Alley. Yeah. I, I went to see Nightmare Alley and it was a small screening. And then I went up to him afterwards and he, you know, he could have talked all day about it. He said, Bob went, came to Toronto where they were shooting Mimic. And in Mimic, I think it's, I recall it's like subway. Bob saw the exterior of these tunnels on a stage and he was very concerned because it didn't look right. Wow. 
Actually, no, no, we're, we're inside. This is yeah. <laughs> yeah. kind of how it works there, Bob. <laughs> but Guillermo couldn't wait to tell me that story is the point. <laughs> Unbelievable. And like, here's the funny thing to me is that that guy watched the Drew Barrymore, like, like the, the iconic opener for any horror movie at this point and went, just some girl walking around with a telephone. Yeah, he did. <laughs> it's Isn't that wonderful intel from Guillermo? Jesus Christ. I know. I made my life to hear that. Of course it did. Uh, without question. Um, so, okay. I'm going to throw some questions away because now I'm going to get to some fun stuff, actually. Why don't you tell me some more fun stories? You're a storyteller, obviously. You got something. Oh, gosh. Fun stories. There's so many. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm going to guide you. How about that? Okay, good. I understand that you were working on Shocker as an assistant at the beginning, correct? No. I'm incorrect. Incorrect. Producer. Producer. I am so sorry. I did not mean, well, I didn't mean that, obviously. That was my big movie after Serpent and the Rainbow, because, you know, Wes and I pretty much survived, you know, practically like death. We had no electricity. The writer had gone crazy and we had to ship him home. We needed a rewrite. We were cutting and pasting in those days. The production office was ignoring us because they just didn't understand that the script was the most important thing and they were horrible to us. So we were together, like cutting and cutting and pasting. Um, And then, you know, the actors outside our door complaining they didn't have a script. And so we really went through, you know, we walked through fire. And so he said, okay, because I, of course, just like I did in France, I said, I want to be a producer. I want to be a producer. And then when we got the deal for Shocker, he goes, it's yours. Wow. And that's how I got it. That is amazing. So, okay, I want to go backwards now for a second. How does one become a producer? Because, okay, actually, I've heard it described a different, few different ways. I've heard it described as herding cats. I believe that's part of the job. Is that correct? Uh, it depends, yeah. It depends. But other people are a lot more creatively involved. There are different ways to kind of carve it up. I know that you certainly were the creative, uh, major creative involvement, obviously. Is that fair to say, too? Yes. Excellent. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about because one thing I loved about, um, well, New Nightmare, but especially the whole screen thing too, as well, is that, but I guess really New Nightmare, it kind of like twisted the final girl trope essentially into yeah. kind of like a more liberated woman and or feminist vision of it. And I don't think that was ever done before, correct? That was part of I said, I don't think that was ever done before, correct? In, the, in that manner. No, not really. I mean, Wes always had obviously female heroines. Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street was pretty feminist, you know. True. Uh, turning her back on Freddie and being all alone, and I think it was just Wes really loved female heroines, and he and he was very like non-sexist, you know, like he was not gross to be with, like most men in the business, and he was just <laughs> yeah. respectful of women, and he loved women, and he yeah. was much more comfortable with women. And um, he just really liked to tell those stories. And really, his movies are much stronger when, you know, it's a female lead. So I think he just, he just was not, he was not sexist. He was not misogynist. He was, you know, you know, he had a very strong daughter. I was a very strong woman. Yep. He just, he just was like, it's so hard to explain because he was just not like, I thought I all men were like him. And then later, then you're hanging out with certain guys in casting sessions and you realize how gross they are. Nope, not at all. And didn't have that. Like it, yeah. actresses would try, like they'd drop a pencil without a bra on and bend over. They, really? 
look at him and say, Hey, anything else you need, let me know. I mean, they were just hitting on him right and left. And he was just oblivious. It just wasn't (laughs) his thing. I kind of just felt like that's just how men were. But I realized when we kind of even worked with other producers that in fact, there was kind of a really yucky side to the whole thing, but I was super protected by him. Mm. Um, And so as far as no, you know, he just wasn't that guy. So I think he just was very in touch with this femininity and, you know, not afraid to show it. Now, by all accounts, and and obviously you're the person that's going to sign off on this too, but by all accounts, everything I've ever heard about Wes Craven is that he was the nicest guy in the world. He really was. You know, he was very shy, very, very painfully shy and couldn't even really wait for you in a restaurant lobby. You know, you had to be right there. He was Uh uncomfortable that way. Um, you know, he was an artist, you know, he was that guy, you know, he, what would be today, like 81. He was just that kind of guy in that generation where men are men who are artists just put a blind eye to everything else in their life. Right. You know, so perhaps they weren't the best fathers, but you know, in those days they were more um, enabled by the women in their lives to just go do it. And they actually didn't think twice about it. And he lived and breathed it. You know, he was a really uh, studious guy and he played classical guitar. He read books constantly. He had an incredible mind where he would catalog every bottle of wine, every DVD he he received. Really? Um, He would catalog. He made manuals of how everything in his home worked. No kidding. You could get the thing, how the dishwasher, how's this, but like technical, he could have written technical manuals. Wow. So he had a really interesting brain. Like, we in those days we would get all the movies from the academy. Like he would have a complete log of them all. Really? Yeah, he would spend hours doing his receipts. He called them his chits. No detail was too small for him, which is I think you can see in his movies. You know, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And I will say this too: is most of this podcast, I'm trying to shape it to be um, ultimately about storytelling and kind of what that looks like, and the muse and the blank page and all that. Um, but and the, hence why it's called inspired minds. But there's always an arc that I like to find with people. You can see an arc, especially with storytelling, right? And Wes was a fantastic, clearly a good storyteller, because it wasn't just about the narrative that he's telling. It was about the meta narrative in so many of his films. About that, what, what, is that too dorky? No, no, no. I, I just missed one word you said. The the did you say the meta? The meta. Well, just you know the meta narrative. The, the yeah. Kind of the, yeah. Self-referential, really, yeah. uh, yes, always like looking at, you know, out from outside in and making a joke of it and observing it. He just was a funny guy. I mean, he was, people knew at the time, but now I go back and like, oh my God, he was such an auteur. And you kind yeah. of thought in those days, well, there's a lot of them, but there really aren't. Can you name anyone subsequently? Yeah, not like that, no. I tried to the other day and I actually couldn't. So he was, I'm just so glad he got the chance to make so many great movies, you know? Um, and it's just a shame that his life was cut so short. Cause he always said he wanted to die on a set. To die what? On a set, you know, working Oh, with his you boots know? on. Yeah. He was so young. Like he literally, when he, even like two years before he was, you know, diagnosed with a brain tumor, say it was a year, he could walk up. If you were in a building of 12 stories, he could easily walk up. And he was just, he wow. was just really like wartime tough. And it's just such a shame that, you know, um, the health got the better of him because he could have gone forever. And he's a guy that just wouldn't stop working, I would imagine. 
he didn't want to. He loved yeah. work. He loved yeah. it. Um, you know, he is. It got older. It was a little like it was a little difficult because he had a little bad, kind of a bad memory. Huh? So you really had to say, you know, in the first act you had this, but it, that doesn't really track, and you'd have to really go through it all because you'd forget by the third act what was in the first act. Uh, but he was great. I mean, he was just really collaborative, and but we loved work. We worked seven days a week. Yeah. You know, so if we, if I, that's how I kind of got started where I was his assistant and I would be with him seven days a week. If he was at a scoring session on a Sunday, it wasn't like today's millennials who were like, oh, I can't do it. My wife, you know, this and that. <laughs> You're totally I wrong. was at everything. Um, and until he went home, then I would go home. But I mean, I just, we just, but we loved it. And that's why we collected such an incredible crew. We said, this is our life. We love it. And we want to have fun. So we don't want to work with assholes. So we would fire any asshole that came in. We just get rid of them. Like one production designer in the van called someone a C U N T. And we got back. I'm like, he's gone. And Wes is like, yep. (laughs) <laughs> awesome oh the no asshole yeah, rule i love the no, no asshole rule. that decorator who we heard on screen three hitting on some extras and we're like you're gone on the dot just go gone. gone today go so he's kind of using his position we could hear it yeah. and we're like, you're out so he was cool that way like he was really let me really handle so much because he just really wanted to worry about what he wanted to worry about, you know, so he was just very collaborative and I would deal a lot with, of course, the costumes and the set deck. I mean, I would go and redecorate a room one hour before we were going to shoot. I would be hands-on on their clothes and their hair and, and, um, and, you know, I had complete license to do that. And it really made people mad, you know, makeup artists and hairstylists. And I remember on Tatum's bedroom, we walked in and West were like, Oh, this sucks. So we had like four hours and we sent everybody to Bed Bath & Beyond and we, re- we reset it. I love that part of it as well. That's just, that is so wonderful to hear. You know, I know that a lot of people who are producers, you know, kind of stay behind the scenes. And the fact that you were like actually doing set decoration be- an hour before. Oh, uh, yeah. I would touch girls' hair. I would go up and say, may I touch your hair? And I would fix their hair. Just you name it. I mean, it's my movie. It's you, Until uh, you're shooting, you can make it better, you know? That is that is exactly right. And, you know, the thing I like, too, um, and again, this is just kind of what I've heard about, uh, or I sorry, I saw this, as a matter of fact, that Wes was apparently a big fan of Frank Zappa, which kind of rung up my ears as I'm a giant music guy. And I'm like, that's amazing, which made me realize that, of course, he had great taste in music. Yes, he did. He really did. He listened to NPR all the time. Um, he he was a, a, he was an intellect. Yeah. Novels, nonfiction, music any kind of music. Um, he just was curious, 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 you know, cause he came from like a real working class family. So he knew he didn't have a lot of Intel in his brain about safe living, you know, wine and food. And, you know, and I think he felt a little inferior by that because he didn't really know, you know, he didn't have sophistication say, but we then, when we started working together, we started traveling all over Europe for our, um, you know, press tours and he just loved it. And he just got into wine and he, um, he just was so curious about everything. Uh, that's, you know, it's funny actually, because my whole thing these days is uh, this thing called radical amazement. 
that I read from some uh, rabbi. And it's just that it's the same concept. Basically, it's just that you wake up in the morning and everything is amazing. It's, you know, the clouds are amazing. The sun is amazing. The last line is so good. It says to be spiritual is to be amazed. And I love that. I'm buying that book. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing to start your day with radical amazement is that. And that's what I, you know, especially having been knighted and really reflecting on my career, realizing that I just at 18, when I moved to France to be an au pair in Cannes, I just knew I was the night I got to Cannes, I knew I was in the right place for my career, but I really asked for it and I manifested it. But you forget about that as life goes on and you realize you can't stop asking. If you do, you know, the universe will give you what you're not, you know, they're not going to give you what you're not asking for. So it really is something to really kind of reflect every morning, the radical amazement and absolutely asking for the universe for what you want, because I knew I was, I mean, how did I know I'm a kid from Lansing, Michigan, you know, who gets a job as an au pair in Cannes. I didn't go to college mm-hmm. and I think I'm going to be a film producer. And I moved to the most glamorous place in the world just because I'd heard of the film festival mm-hmm. and just told everyone. And then I just kept telling Wes too. And so doors open when you ask, now you have to be asking, hopefully something you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. <laughs> I knew I could be a producer because I knew I, you know, I can organize and, you know, I love movies. And I, I just knew that I, I knew I wouldn't be an editor or a director or what? an actor. I just knew that I could produce. So it is pretty fascinating. Anyway, I love radical amazement. I'm going to write that down. It's so good. I mean, you know, I'll email you the whole quote in the book. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. It is, it is the North star of my life right now, especially as a burgeoning therapist. And I just, I'm trying to be in service all my life right now. If I can get paid for it, fantastic. If not, eh, I still want to get paid. <laughs> but very kind of inspiring. Kind of halfway getting. But no, it's all about service work, which is why I want to go into just a few more things before uh, I don't want to take up, take up all your time. But I, I really want to talk about music of my heart. And yes. that was such an interesting turn. I have a couple of comments about that and I want to see what you uh, have to say. But for me, music education is everything. Because I was thinking about this last night and kind of reviewing some, some some things. And when I was in high school or even younger, I learned how to play the cello. I learned how to play the violin, the guitar, the saxophone, the piano, right? And yeah. that clearly opened me up. And then I found this statistic I thought it was interesting too and not surprising. And that is schools with music programs have an estimated 90% graduation rate versus 72% graduation rate without Oh, it's so true. I mean, we learned that with Roberta in Music of the Heart. Like she, if those kindergartens started taking that Suzuki violin, yeah. they were going to excel like specifically in math of all things. Uh-huh. So it's so important and it's just not a priority here. It is absolutely not. And that is so tragic. You know, and every time there's any kind of budget cuts, it's like, oh, we'll just take out arts. Bye. Yeah. You know, and like, oh, the kids need to play music. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Right. It's just so heartbreaking. It is. I agree with you. And, you know, it kind of, honestly, it kind of reminded me a little bit of fame, like like the younger version of fame. Remember that movie? Yeah. The Alan Parker thing? Sure. Yeah. It's just, that was so critical to me. So I'm kind of like thanking you over oh. the podcast waves and you and Wes, like for doing that. It was important for me. Thank you so much. It was such an amazing movie to make. I mean, you know, we shot at Carnegie Hall and one day we were shooting at one night, two in the morning and. Meryl Streep and Isaac Stern were on stage and we heard this crazy sound. Holy crap. And we're like, what could this be? And it was like snoring. And of course, in Carnegie Hall, it was like everywhere, you know, because of the acoustics. And of course, it's two in the morning. You've got Isaac Stern, 
and Meryl and, you know, Isaac wasn't young. And we realized there was a teamster asleep um, in one of the seats up above. And that was, that screwed us up for a half an hour. You located him and got him out of there. (laughs) um, I turn. Oh my God. Two in the morning. Can you imagine? Nope. So that was pretty funny, but we had so much fun. And then we, you know, we premiered it at the White House and yeah. we showed it to um, Bill and Hillary in the theater at the White House. Yeah, I saw that photo of you and Hillary. But I think Bill fell asleep because I was sitting right behind him. <laughs> he really? He's like, I'm done. <laughs> he fell asleep. But um, that was the night that we got to have a two hour tour of uh, the White House by Bill. That isn't the bad. Are you serious? At midnight, because Hillary said, Bill, why don't you show him your office? And of course, that means the Oval Office. Guys, I'm done. And he did for two hours. Kidding me. We were in the Oval Office. We were everywhere. And then I got to do a shoot a documentary and I got to go to the Lincoln bedroom. Just me and our associate producer, Dan Arredondo. We had the whole run of the upstairs. You're kidding. Just us. Because the guy who ran, you know, the guys that were, they're like, yeah, you're good. No security. No, nobody. no, No. Wow. Please tell me you took a knife like everybody does. No, I took a napkin. Okay, well, that's fair enough. <laughs> like in the bathroom, they had a bunch of napkins that said White House. Well, of course, you're going to take something like that. It was so cool because we were up in the you know Lincoln bedroom, and then they had a sunroom that really looked like a Michigan sunroom with a bunch of games. It was extremely um, chill. You know, it was not fancy at all. Really? Yeah. It's kind of a bummer. That was cool. I mean, it's so chill. Like you could just see the family, what they were up to. And anyway, it was great. So that movie did open so many doors. And of course, Meryl was nominated. The song was nominated. We went to the Oscars. It couldn't have been, um, you know, of course it was not the movie you would think Wes would do, but it was a great experience. I was really surprised. To be honest with you, I knew the movie pretty well because, you know, I'm a music education guy and have taught some kids and music stuff. So it's an important movie for me. I didn't realize it was Wes's movie until last night. That's so funny. Are you kidding? I'm sure to God. I had no idea. Oh, that was, that's, I know it, it was just, you know, it's because Bob said, if you do Scream 2, we'll let you do anything that we have. And so we looked at all their projects and that's the one Wes liked. Interesting. Uh-huh. What drew him to that, do you think? And you? Well, I mean, he just wanted to do, he was just desperate to get out of the genre. He really felt like he was slumming and he was B and he really did. He really had a, kind of a love-hate relationship with horror. And he wanted out so bad. And um, that was his negotiation. And that one, I mean, he, I don't remember the other projects at the time, but at, at the same time, he was reluctant because I think he was fearful and he wouldn't read anything. And I'm like, wow, you got to re- we got to make a decision here. But I think he had a real, um, and which is why I think he, he didn't really pursue, like after Red Eye, you'd think he could have pursued more just thrillers, yeah, right? Yeah. But he, he didn't, he felt, he felt he he panicked, you know, like as if you recall, at that point, he started developing a Broadway musical about Magic Macabre. But it was like, what? You just had Red Eye, which was made sixty five million dollars. But he had a insecurity about himself. Um, so that's interesting. And I think with Music of the Heart, I mean, he was a teacher. He he just liked it, you know, Um and again, he was just dying to do anything that was not horror. I can understand that because, you know, the more I'm realizing on this conversation is that clearly he was an artist. And I mean, the capital A, there's capital A and little a, in my opinion. Yeah. And that capital A can be a curse. And I know this because yeah. I 
kind of got that in me too a little bit. And you can you can attain incredible heights of emotion and storytelling and narrative and meaning and in art. I mean, I I know how that works, but you can also have a lot of mental illnesses, which is quite frankly kind of the reason I'm going into this purpose or this business as well. Right. Um, and not just mental illnesses, but you know, anxiety and anxiety. fear and abandonment and whatever it looks like from a lot of your past usually. And it so I get that, and I also know that artists cannot stop creating big A's can't stop creating or they kind of deteriorate or they slip away or they go into addiction. Yes. You know that. Yeah, I do know that. I think that, you know, with him, his wife really encouraged him to sort of stop directing and they moved to the Martha's vineyard and she bought him a moped and he <laughs> fell and he literally broke his shin in half practically. Oh no! And that was kind of the beginning of the end because he then broke his hip and then soon after he had prostate cancer and then he had, of course, a brain tumor. And I think I got to say for me, it's like, you know, keep him in the chair, you know, like yeah. he, he just kind of he even wrote an article if you can find it in I think it was a Martha's Vineyard newspaper about retirement. And it's very interesting if you try to see if you can find that. And I think he didn't want to retire. He wanted to be in LA where, and we work, you know, we loved working. So it was where he felt alive. You know, he was the most comfortable in a director's chair. Yeah. He needed that. That makes perfect. I'm the same way. When I get a guitar in my hand, I am at peace. And more importantly, I am centered, right? Mm -hmm. Because for me and, and, and a lot of other artists I know, and you'll understand this as well, art or for me personally and personally, it's, it's a ladder to God. I always say it's a ladder to God. And usually it's like the Beach Boys pet sounds or, you know, the Beatles or just something that's so majestic and kind of wrapped in a pop frame. But that's what artists do, right? That's why we get into these, these crazy weird worlds because we want to have a connection with something else. Absolutely. Yes. And I think, you know, and it, like you said, it could be a detriment to family, you know, sure, and to many things. But I think with him, it, it's also, it was all who he was surrounded by because I think what we did is I could, lead him to uh-huh. places. And, you know, I always did say one thing, which is funny is that I spoke for men because I'd get like five guys, the DP, the director, uh-huh. and no guy was talking to each other and we weren't moving forward. Uh-huh. So I'd have to say, okay, so Wes, is this what you meant? Oh, and then DP. Um, and you thought that, right. And right. because they were all like not be talking to each other. So Wes did need as any artist does in, in a commerce, you know, business, obviously they need someone to, you know, keep them going and protect them, but also discipline them. Yes. And I think that's, that's a- why our relationship was so creative and good for so long because I could provide the outside world and he didn't have to. Mm-hmm. I think there's a quote where he said he chose someone the opposite of himself to be his partner, me, you know, business partner. Yeah. And I just read it recently. I can't remember where I saw it, but it was it was, he like, it was not outgoing. He was, but he would love to go. So like in Europe, I'd say, Oh, we're going here. We're going there. We're going to this gym. We're having a big party at your house. And he was like, great, but he needed a shepherd and he needed also someone to carefully tell him when maybe things weren't working. And the other thing that these guys get are people say, everything is brilliant. Everything is wonderful. And then you can see all these movies guys make in their older years that are three hours long and terrible because they don't have that person or they don't want that person in their life anymore because they just want to hear they're a genius. So Wes needed 
like he just wasn't automatically everything he did a genius. He really needed editing and pointing things out. And he needed, you know, to be in the room with someone who could talk. And so I think that was the key to our relationship. There's so much. I have two comments on this, if you don't mind. Number one, what a beautiful tango. It sounds like you guys did. Amazing. Right. It's a tango. Yeah. And like, how wonderful was that to have that experience? Um, and I forgot the second thing I was going to say, because I am so enwrapped with that story. So there you go. Yeah, It was great. It was so wonderful. We just had so much fun and we, I'm still best friends with so many of the crew members. It was an enchanted time. We, we had, we, again, we don't think we realized that other people would tell us, you don't understand what it's like working for other people because we only work together and we had just so much fun. Like yeah, we, I can when tell. I say party, I don't mean we drank all night, but I mean, we on screen, we, when we scouted in Santa Rosa, we went to great restaurants every day. I would make it, you know, I would say, okay, we're having this big dinner this night. So I kind of made it fun because it was our life and it couldn't just be work all the time. So we had a blast. Oh, and there's, oh, I know what I was going to say too. It sounds like there's just so much humility, which is a, no one has that anymore. <laughs> so, oh right? yeah. Wes was just the most, the, Wes would, he didn't know the difference between people. So he wouldn't treat he would never dream of treating one person another way and another person another way because uh, he didn't even focus on that. What a wonderful guy! I'm yeah, uh, I'm, great. I'm happy you uh, I'm happy you met him, and I wish that I did too as well. I want to. I, I would be remiss, and I really want to talk to you, uh, kind of just briefly, because I want to pick up too much of your time about Scream, the TV series, because that like went also out. That whole series exploded. I mean, that was a big and you know VH1, MTV, the whole thing, and. I guess I'm curious, um, the ref- I love how it was reframed in a teen world. And what was that experience like, the whole thing for you? Well, I mean, for me, I just thought, uh, you know, the biggest mistake was not getting the mask. So once you didn't have the mask, you know, right. <laughs> spend the money on the mask. And so it was fun, but, you know, what screen okay. without the mask? So I'm happy it went on for so long and it was certainly fun to make, but Mask. It could have yeah. been better. I got you. I got you. Yeah. So I do want to close this out, uh, or at least one more thing. I really want to talk about this. This is actually the whole reason I was really excited because of my friend's place. Yes. And that whole world with youth and homelessness and, you know, stability and that, that whole thing. I work with a lot of uh, people like that in my world now. And that is so important. Can you tell me more about that, please? Well, I mean, I just, obviously we know, you know, we have such a homeless situ- population in LA, but really to help, you have to start young because yeah. it's, you know, again, my whole philosophy is being in a country that has no socialized medicine for a hundred years. Yeah. This is why we are where we are. Yeah. People say, I don't get it. How do you fix it? I'm like, you fix it a hundred years ago and you give everybody medical insurance, yeah. <laughs> but it's never going to happen. It hasn't happened. And thus, you know, but I think my friends place at all these, these organizations like that, you've got to get to the kids. And, you know, you've got to have whatever organizations, mentor, change kids' lives, whatever you can give them a word of encouragement, be kind, you know, give them some hope. And I support any, any organization that couldn't, that has their entire philosophy to be about that, because especially right now, the kids going through COVID and then not only that, just, um, Life is so difficult now. Drugs are so easy to get. There's so many drug overdoses. So it's kind of like our whole life really has to be about the kids, you know, and saving their yes. lives. And I'm really saying saving their lives because drug addiction, 
drug overdose in LA. I know so many people whose children have died of drugs. And, you know, I say to people here, I don't have kids, but I'm like, you know, I've said to people, you got to get your kid out of that school. Yeah, I know. But they're, you know, want to go to college. I'm like, you know what? They're not happy. They're eating their lunch in the toilet alone because they have no friends, you know, move, get out, sell your cars. You have, if you have kids, you have to be willing to change your life. Mm-hmm. And I kind of blame parents because they get, you know, they have, of course you got to work and all that, but you've got to prioritize and you've got to prioritize your kids. And if they're sad or they're not, you know, being bullied, you got to think about moving, you know? Right. And maybe you don't have the money and maybe or but most people in LA kind of have uh, the, my crowd, they have the money, you know, but they don't have to have two BMWs and they don't have to, you know, go be a member of the Soho house, you know, so, but they don't want to because they want the fantasy of who they want their kids to be. Again, easy for me to say, cause I don't have kids. No, so, you're absolutely, you're right about this. Yeah. Right. So I just try to, you know, I have so many kids in my life and, you know, I always want to do whatever I can. I mean, I don't have a lot of time, but whatever I can to be encouraging and positive and never negative and, and helpful. And, uh, but I'm just really saddened because like I said, I've had friends who've lost their kids to drugs and, you can't go back from that. No, I mean, I've been sober for uh, a while, but you, it's, it's really sad actually when you've been sober for, it's like, I haven't had a drink in like, I don't know, 11 years, but you, the more that you do this, the more you kind of, you hear about so many overdosing deaths. Sometimes you're just kind of getting, I won't say numb, but you just say, oh, again, you know? Yeah. And congratulations for that, your sobriety. And yes, that's what I'm saying though, but that's why there has to be early education, but really it's about the parents have to be the ones to, yeah. to be alert, not on their phones. And, you know, but again, it goes back, what's their marriage like, what's their, you know, head like, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, so it's so complicated. And again, if we had, you know, socialized medicine and especially free mental health and mm-hmm. Some kind of structured system for mental health because now you're like I'm depressed. Where do I go? I don't know what to do. Right. Um. Oh well, if you go to a mental hospital, it'll be on your record forever, and it's horrible. Don't do that. And yeah. therapy is two hundred dollars. Yeah. Okay. You know, ketamine's yeah. five hundred dollars a pop. Like, where do you go? And and so it's. I mean, I know people who are doing the ketamine clinics, and mm-hmm. the guys are telling me they're getting thirteen year olds in there. Who wow. you know. You shouldn't really be doing ketamine until you're 18, but kids are so depressed and parents don't know what to do is my point. So they're like, what can I find? What can I do? So it is, it is a big, it's just a big problem in our country um, right now too, with kids being bombarded with all the violence. It's, 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 it's certainly a challenge right now. It's a terrifying world that we live in. I will say it out loud. But regardless, I get to talk to awesome people like you. So thank well, you. And that's why you watch horror movies, because you get to re you get to live out your fears and survive. And I think oh. that's what Wes always said is like, look, life sucks. That has always sucked. But you get to go to a movie like you get to go to a, a you know a roller coaster and you survive at the end and you work out all that anxiety. So, you know, uh, you know, you gotta in- still enjoy your life and be, you know, what did you say, radical amazement? Radical amazement. No matter how bad it is, you've got to have radical amazement because, you know, we've got, you got to live and you've got to try, like you said, to help others with your positivity, right? I say to people, if I bring them down, look, all I got is my positive energy. You know, I didn't like what you did. You didn't call me back for two days on this one thing. It was just, I can't handle it. Goodbye. Good luck. But all I have is my positive energy. And if we're going to try to kill it, I can't have you in my life, you know? So, um, I do think it's, it's, you know, I find myself self-censoring myself when I say something negative or 
it, you know, if ver- certainly if I verbalize it, like I chastise myself over it, like never do that. You know, every word hurts or heals. So it's so important to self-monitor and also to bust people if they say something to you, but you have to be, you know, honest and look at yourself too. Sure. But um, like uh, the other day I was at camp and I went to a uh, Top Gun premiere and I posted pictures on my Instagram of Tom Cruise and this friend from Michigan, like posted puke Tom Cruise and a puke emoji what on my instagram i'm like hey what's with the negative messaging you know yeah. like i'm oh, sorry I do. i'm glad you're having fun but i just hate tom cruise you know i'm like okay well that's not really helpful no not <laughs> hey i have an idea be a part of the solution whatever that looks like puke a puke emoji with tom cruise like i get if it was hitler right <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise, for God's sake. Who cares? So uh, my point is, and again, I'm not going to say they're bad and I'm not, because I certainly am guilty of those. You know, I can certainly say something negative, but I really do try to meditate every day and say, keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything negative to yourself or others. Don't don't take in anything negative. But I do work on it because I do think words can heal or or wound, heal or hurt. Yeah, you know the lessons of life, don't you? You're learning, or you keep you are continuing to learn the lessons of life. I will say that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's an endless. You'll never learn them all. So just no, stay, no. stay the eternal student. That's exactly what I tell everybody: be an eternal student. Absolutely, and that's again. You know, I always I'm not religious, and I you know grew up Catholic, and there was people would pray, and but I realized the point of prayer was really a meditation. All you have are your thoughts, and all you have to quell your fears about, say, you know, your mother isn't doing well, and what can you do if you're not there? You can only have positive thoughts. Another word is prayer, but all you can do is put positive energy out there because you can't do anything else. So I do think the power of meditation and manifestation and positive thinking is so important. And I think, again, take the religion out of it. That's why prayer was invented because what else can you do? You know, you're absolutely correct. God, you're smart. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. (laughs) We're going to do a little thing here. It's one thing I got to tell you, I'd be completely remiss if I didn't. Um, When I was about 15, I had this giant poster of Freddy Krueger in my room because I was, you know, 15 or 14 or something. And my little sister at the time, who was like two years old, terrified. (laughs) To this day, I will bring it up. And she's like, she's 40. She's like, no. (laughs) I I have the same kind of people in my life. They're like, I can't be in your house if you're going to have that poster up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I should call her after this. Hey, remember that time? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Oh, it's only a movie. It's only, a, keep repeating. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. That's right. <laughs> well done. Um, thank you so much for doing this again. Don't forget, if you ever need any old school voiceover work like The Voice, or I actually met the AOL movie phone guy one time, and we had a little thing going on for a second, like a, like a voice off. Oh, um, my God, that's so cool. It was amazing. They're like, oh, Jeff, you want to meet the Mr. AOL guy, movie phone? I'm like, yeah, duh. So he came back and forth for a bit. But again, thank you. I do a little thing here at the end, and we're going to pretend to say goodbye officially, and we're going to do a little acting, and I'll slate us in. Then I'm going to, quote, unquote, hang up, click, and then we're going to have a quick conversation after officially say goodbye. Deal? Yep. All right. Here we go. Thank you. Honestly, thank you so much. I've had an incredibly wonderful time. I will send you the Radical Amazement uh, stuff, and um, I'm going to send you you my favorite joke. It's about Buddhism. You'll love it. Now your turn. Pretend to say goodbye. Thank you so much. I've had the most wonderful time. You have the most incredible questions. And I think the show is fabulous. Oh, my God. It's 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 you approved. It's a wait, wait, time out. We're approved by a knight. (laughs) 
that's a holy crap. And if I were you, by the way, one last thing, if I were you, I'd walk around with those pens and I would go to every single person and I'd say, I'm a knight. Give me a free scone. <laughs> well, I did that when I was in France. But you, you can't wear the metal, but they give you a teeny little green pin and people yeah. there know. So I'm like, oh, yes, the taxi driver. Did you see him a shovel? Did you really do that? I did. Of course you did. I would have shed. They love it. I'm sure they would. I would get free everything. Are you kidding me? Walk into movie theater, popcorn, doesn't matter. I'm getting anything for free. Anyway, we're going to do the little uh, pretend to hang up and then we're going to talk. Deal? Okay. Okay. Three, two, one, click. (laughs) 